Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. If you were to ask me, as a pastor, what is the question you most often get asked about God? My answer would be some variation of the question, why does God allow suffering in the world? Why does God allow suffering in the world? It's a common question because we all experience suffering in this world. It's an honest question because we don't need to compare our scars to realize no one is immune from enduring pain and loss to one degree or another in this life. And it's a fair question. It's a fair question because faith can be most shaken. Faith can even be deconstructed whenever we walk through trying and difficult times. For it is when we suffer that we wonder, why God? We wonder what kind of God would allow this. It's one of those challenging questions that has been a topic of endless reflection and debate for thousands of years. And it's a question that I've never had an easy answer for. And it's a question I've never liked an easy answer for. And it's a question, just in case you were wondering, that I'm not going to be able to answer in this moment with a single sermon. However, what I believe today's story from the Bible, another story, by the way, about a miraculous, unexpected healing, what I believe today's story from the Bible offers us is a strong suggestion of what the answer isn't. In other words, in this passage we're about to read, unique, by the way, to the Gospel of Luke, we will discover the reason, what the reason cannot possibly be as to why God allows suffering in this world. Now, as we get ready, accounts like this one, accounts of healing, are common in the Gospels, particularly, by the way, in the Gospel of Luke, the physician's account of the life of Christ. But this story, I hope you'll notice, this story of an unnamed woman, a mother, which, by the way, I didn't plan, happened to be that, the case that it fell on Mother's Day. This story of an unnamed woman, a mother, and her unexpected encounter with Jesus It's going to shatter many of the patterns we might expect to see when a healing is involved. You know, as Christians, we often talk about our belief that God came down to us into the world in Jesus Christ, what's otherwise known as the Incarnation. But in this small episode, we're about to witness the big picture of the Incarnation, of what God crossing the line, the boundary between divinity and humanity for us in Christ, what it means, and how it reveals and informs God's whole redemptive purpose for us. So in your Bibles that are in front of you or your eyes on the screen, let's hear from Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 11. It reads, Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. 
They were, they were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For reasons that are not made clear, Jesus journeys roughly 25 miles from his normal base of operations, a town called Capernaum, to somewhere not that far from his hometown of Nazareth, a place called Nain. He's accompanied on this road trip not only by his usual disciples, but he's also accompanied by a large crowd of would-be admirers, of people who couldn't contain their curiosity to witness what Jesus would say or do next. But, as we heard, when Jesus and his entourage arrive at the gate of the town, any sense of anticipation, any sense of excitement in the air is soon swallowed up by the shadow of death. For as they are about to enter the town, they encounter the funeral procession of a young man. The body of the deceased is being carried outside of the town because in most of the ancient world, burials were prohibited inside the walls of the city. A woman leads this funeral processional. She's surrounded by her neighbors as she walks forward in pain and sorrow. We are never given her name, but while we are never given her name, we learn that she is a mother, the mother of this child who has died. More than this, this woman, this mother, has lost her only son. In fact, she has most likely suffered the loss of her only child, For if she had a daughter, that daughter would be standing by her side as part of this processional. The sting of death always leaves a mark. But whenever a parent has to bury their own child, for a mother to put to rest in the tomb, the same one who first came from her womb, this is a devastating blow. And this mother's grief is still raw. This mother's grief is still raw. We know this because Jewish burial laws of the time would have required her to bury her child within 24 hours of his passing. This means her son has just died. This poor woman hasn't even had time to process what has happened, even as she is preparing to lay the lifeless body of her only child into the ground. She hasn't even had time to process Not only the tragedy that is before her, but the even greater catastrophe still to come. The greater catastrophe still to come is something Luke hints at when he shares with us this woman isn't just a grieving mother. She is a grieving widow. To lose your husband and your son would be terrible for any woman at any time and at any place, but doubly so for a woman living in the ancient world. Without the support of a husband or a brother or a father or the provision of a son, the life of a woman in a patriarchal society was life-threatening at worst and miserable most of the time. The repeated biblical concern and command toward assisting widows, something we see over and over again in the scriptures, comes from how dire the situation of widows often ended up. Living in a man's world, this mother, this widow, would be left both undefended and potentially unsupported. There was no inheritance. There was no property. There was no pension. 
There was no social security. There was only relying on the charity of others in order to survive. Yes, the community rallied around her now. Yes, her friends and neighbors support her for a time. But then, like now, the mourners eventually go home. The mourners get on with the busyness of their lives, and the one who grieves is left alone. This mother will be left alone, alienated in a hostile and unforgiving world. This widow will be pushed to the margins of society with her future prospects precariously situated on the razor's edge between life and death. This is the scene Jesus comes upon as he prepares to enter this town, a moment that is just drowning in sorrow. Here at a funeral procession, not just for one, but actually for two people. A young man who has died and a childless mother, a widow who is now staring death in the face in more ways than one. This is the scene Jesus comes upon, and in response, without hesitation, Jesus moves in. Jesus, as he later definitively will do on the cross, Jesus moves toward death, confronting death rather than backing away from it. Jesus, who who in later handing himself over for crucifixion, will become a curse for all humanity as he hangs on a tree. Jesus here willingly touches the bier, the structure used to transport the body for burial. Jesus willingly touches the bier, crossing the bounds of ritual purity, becoming unclean for the sake of this woman, this widow, this mother, and her son. Stepping out in front of the pallbearers and the long line of mourners, Jesus, unprompted, brings the whole procession to a halt. He suddenly and shockingly interrupts this funeral. The pallbearers, pallbearers, no doubt confused, stop. Interrupting the privacy, the intimacy of this moment is yet another cultural violation. But as Jesus has already proven, and later will do so again, most profoundly on a hill called Calvary, Jesus demonstrates yet again he is willing to cross every line, no matter how sacred, no matter how taboo, in order to get where we are and to bring us where he is. And that this is Jesus' intention with this mother and her son becomes clear by what happens next. As Jesus talks to a dead man, As Jesus talks to a dead man and tells him to get up on his feet. As Jesus claims and breathes life into both a son and his mother who have been marked for death. And just so we don't miss the significance of this, I don't know if you caught it, but notice how Luke emphasizes the dead man sat up and began to talk. The dead man. And even more than this, more poignantly, Luke underscores Jesus gave him back to his mother. Just as there had been two deaths, now there were two resurrections. In giving her back her son, Jesus gives this woman, this mother, this widow, back her life. Her life with her son and her economic security and stability through her son. Both lives 
are restored and once again made whole. Now this is a wonderful story. It's a wonderful story, but it's also a story that some of us may not particularly like. I mean, after all, most of us can relate more to the mother, to the position of the widow at the start of the story, than we can in terms of this story's end. I'd imagine all of us have or will lose people we dearly love, people upon whom we rely and depend, and yet we have, we will not experience Jesus bringing them physically back to life. So what good is it? What good is it on Luke's part to tell a story about Jesus raising a widow's son from the dead when stories like this do not happen today? In a world where our sons and daughters keep dying, where our sons and daughters keep dying in any number of unfair, unjust, and unthinkable ways, tragic car accidents, fighting in wars, succumbing to cancer or some other disease, falling victim to suicide, losing their life because of gunshots in the streets or even in schools, dying simply because they lack access to food, shelter, and clean water. Why? Why bother include a story about Jesus raising a widow's son from the dead when Jesus doesn't raise our dead sons and daughters? On the surface of it, this story appears only to aggravate the nagging question that so many of us ask. Why God allows suffering and death in our world? But again, this is one of those questions for which no complete or satisfying answer can be given now. No complete or satisfying answer can be given now. For now, this is a question. No matter how we seek to answer it, this is a question that still leaves us walking by faith. This is a question that leaves us either believing what we want to believe or trusting what God teaches and demonstrates to us in Christ. As I mentioned earlier, stories like this one can offer us some clear insight into what the answer is not. What the answer is not when it comes to the suffering and death we experience in this life. What we can learn from this story is the answer to the question why God allows suffering and death in this world isn't that our creator is detached or indifferent to our human condition. There are details in this story, things which I skipped over, that powerfully refute any notion that the God we worship is some distant, uninterested clockmaker who sets the whole cosmos in motion and then takes a backseat to see how things will work out. No. In this encounter, we discover the God we worship, the God who comes down to us in Jesus Christ, does so to enter into and to take on all of our misery and suffering. Perhaps the most important detail of this story is revealed in a single verse, verse 13. And that verse reads like this. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. The first thing that should stand out 
is in contrast to so many of the, so many of the other healing stories in the Gospels. In this encounter, the person in need of healing never asks for help. In fact, I don't know if you caught this, this mournful mother, this widow, never speaks at all. And no doubt consumed by her grief, it's not hard to imagine she probably has no words left to say. And yet, even though she finds herself speechless, despite apparently not recognizing or approaching Jesus, Jesus, Luke stresses, Jesus sees her. And my friends, this is a little detail with big implications. I don't know what your particular struggles are right now. I don't know what particular struggles you're facing, the specific pain you're dealing with right now. All I know is in a broken world, we're all suffering to one degree or another. All I know, whatever your situation may be, no matter how down and out Things may look for you, no matter how invisible or insignificant you may feel, no matter how consumed by loss or hurt you are. What I know is Jesus sees you. Jesus sees you. Even if we can't see Jesus, Jesus sees us. Jesus sees you. Jesus sees you in that deep hole, in that dark place, in that bad spot where the shadow of death hangs over you. Jesus sees you. And Jesus comes for you. Now maybe you think, maybe you've even been told, God forbid. Maybe you think, maybe you've even been told, you don't have enough faith. Maybe you don't have any faith at all for Jesus to see you, for Jesus to be in your corner. But if that's what you think, if that, God forbid, is what you've been told, my response is to pay attention to this story. For this woman who never speaks, never evidences any faith. By all accounts, given what she's going through, she's got no faith of her own left. I mean, isn't that what suffering, isn't that what loss, isn't that what death does to us? It sucks all the faith out of us. And yet for this woman who doesn't exhibit any faith of any kind, Jesus not only sees her, but moves toward her to give her the faith she needs. I said it last week, because it was true, and I've said it before, And I'll say it again. And I hope that just one more person today hears this. Biblically, biblically, faith is a gift. Faith is a gift. Faith is not something we have in God. Faith is something God gives to us in Jesus Christ. To a woman who has lost everything, including any reason to hope at all, Jesus makes the first move. Jesus takes the initiative to give her something to believe in. And Luke goes on to tell us why. Luke goes on to tell us why Jesus comes forward, unprompted, into this mother, into this widow's life, 
Luke emphasizes when Jesus sees this grieving woman, his heart went out to her. His heart went out to her. And I'm here to tell you that this English translation and others like it, maybe your Bible says Jesus was moved with compassion. The, our English translation doesn't near do justice to the fullness of Jesus' response to this woman's plight. Because the nuance of the rare Greek verb Luke exercises here is something much more emphatic and visceral. It's this great-sounding Greek word. You probably have heard it before, but if you haven't, I am just thrilled to introduce it to you. It's splank nizomai. There's a word to impress your friends, right? Splank nizomai. Just rolls right off the tongue. Splank nizomai. It means to be torn up in the gut. Splank nizomai is what we might say when something just gets you right here. And it's used in only two other places in the Bible, by the way, besides here. Two other places it's used, interestingly, are in parables, stories told by Jesus. Splank nizomai is the verb used to describe what moves a Samaritan not to look the other way. Not to step aside or walk on the other side of the road, but to see and move forward and to save the life of a Jew, a professed enemy who has been badly beaten and left for dead. Splanknizomai is the verb, the same verb that later explains why a father who prematurely liquidated half of his estate for a child who declared, declared Dad, you're dead to me now. This same child who then blows it all and loses everything. It's the same verb, splanknizomai, that explains, despite all this, why this father, at the first sight of this child, upon seeing his prodigal son, who was once dead to him, but is now walking back home, doesn't wait in the house for his child to come crawling back to him, but goes out running, running, to grab hold of him and to draw him back in his arms. Splank nizomai. It's the same verb that reveals why Jesus doesn't just see this woman, this widow, this mother, but steps forward to interrupt this funeral. As Jesus is seeing all that she's going through, it tears him up inside. It's gut wrenching. It makes him sick to his stomach. It, it, it affects the very core of his being. Or as we might put it today, Jesus saw this woman and his heart broke. Another little detail, by the way, that we could easily overlook is how Luke writes, not Jesus saw this woman and was moved with compassion, but how Luke writes, the Lord was moved with such immense heartbreak. This is the first time in his gospel Luke has used the word, the title Lord, in relation to Jesus. And it's not an accident. Luke wants us to understand one of the characteristics that demonstrates Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is God in the flesh, is the expression of such deep and wide compassion. It's interesting. It's interesting and perhaps telling. We don't pay much attention as to whether or not God sees us 
as to whether or not the Lord cares about what's going on in our lives. We don't pay much attention when our lives are going the way we want them to go. When things are the way we expect them to be. But when our lives stop going the way we want them to go, when we experience pain and suffering, our default reaction tends to be lament and doubt, raising questions as if God is even paying attention or just doesn't care at all. However, what we learn here, what the message of the cross is all about, is if there's one thing that cannot be said of the God we look to in worship, if there's one thing that cannot be said of the God revealed in the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, is that this God doesn't care about our pain and suffering. Just as Jesus, in seeing this woman in all her agony, in all her misery, in all her heartache, it troubled him. It tore him up. Beloved, in the same way, God sees all that we are going through. And it tears him up so much that he comes down to us in Christ. He comes down to us in Christ not as a puppet master, not as a manipulator, not as a sadist. But he comes down to us in Christ purposing to enter firsthand into the full force of our human condition, our vulnerability, our grief, our loss. My friends, make no mistake, when our heart breaks, God's heart breaks too. But God's heart does more than break with ours. God's heart does more than break with ours. What we also learn from this story long before the event of the cross is that the God who comes down to us in Christ does not come down simply to stand in solidarity with us. To stand in solidarity with us in the face of the suffering and death of this world. No, this God who comes down to us in Christ comes down to do something. To right what is wrong. To fix what is broken, to restore what has been lost. Jesus, in his heartbreak for this grieving woman, doesn't merely feel sorry for her. He doesn't just have pity on her. No, in his recognition and identification with her, Jesus' deep compassion for her moves him to act, to do something about her suffering, not even allowing death to stop him. And so Jesus intentionally stops this somber procession. And with a word, Jesus speaks and not only confronts and silences death, Jesus speaks and undoes death. For as a child is returned to his mother, a funeral prematurely ends and an unexpected birthday party begins. I know, I know it's still hard to appreciate this story. I know it's still hard to appreciate this story if our focus is only on the healing, the miraculous raising of a dead man. If that's all we get from this encounter, we're liable still to walk away resentful for not having experienced such a miracle in our own life. And if that's where we land, ultimately, if that's where we stay, we're going to end up doubtful. Doubtful that something like this could even have actually happened. But my friends, the point of this story, what this encounter points to, 
is something much more than the resuscitation of someone who was formerly dead. What this story points to is something much more than the temporary reunion of a mother and a son. Because think about it. While coming back from the dead is all well and good, if we stop and think about it, if this is the end of the story, all this does is buy them, this mother and son, a little more time. All this does is buy them a little more time. Those whom Jesus raises from the dead in the Gospels all will have to die again. Do you ever think about that? And the next time they will die for good. The point of this story, why it's in the Bible, is not for us to focus on those who are healed. It's instead to recognize the one who has healed them. Notice this is the realization, by the way, of the awestruck crowd gathered around the once dead, now breathing son and his mother as they proclaim, God has looked favorably on his people. Instead of asking, where's my miracle? Where's my miracle? The crowd recognizes this moment serves as the promise of something greater, even more miraculous, being offered to all people. Because what this encounter reveals is the one who comes in Jesus Christ is the one who comes with both the purpose and the power not merely to raise the dead but to conquer death itself. In other words, the deep compassion that leads Jesus to act in this moment does not stop here. No, what happens here is only a foretaste. It's only a sign pointing to what will one day be for all who follow Christ. A promised resurrection that is eternal, a new everlasting life beyond the grasp of death. What Jesus accomplishes in this encounter sets the stage for his victory in rising from the grave, in not just coming back from the dead, but completely undoing death once and for all. In what happens here, we witness the evidence of the God who refuses to stand idly by, but comes down in Christ to confront and undo the very forces that cause us to die. The very things that not only cause our hearts to stop when we physically expire, but also the very things that along the way make our hearts break. We need to hear this this morning. Because sometimes in this broken world of ours, a broken world of our own making, sometimes in this broken world of ours, it can seem as though our existence is nothing more than a relentless assault of grief, loss, suffering. We can find ourselves just getting hit again and again and again. We can find ourselves accepting death as the norm of our lives. We can so easily learn just to always prepare for the worst rather than looking, rather than hoping, rather than working for the best. We can learn to act more and more each day as if our lives are over, as if our lives are over, rather than learning each day how to grow and mature in light of God's promise of life beyond death. Again, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what your struggle is. I don't know what pain and suffering you're facing, and I'm not making light of any of it. 
God forbid. But I'm asking, is the only momentum that you have these days the forward, forward motion of a funeral procession with your head down? Is that the only forward momentum you have just waiting to die? Or are you advancing into the future with your head up, walking by faith, Faith that thanks to the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that nothing, nothing, nothing is ever final. We may not know. We may not understand why Jesus doesn't interrupt the funerals we attend in our lives. But that doesn't mean we can't know. That doesn't mean we can't believe that in a world of broken hearts, God still sees. God looks to care for us in our grief. God in his compassion still extends to us a healing hand to raise us up even when it feels like we're about to be buried under the weight of all that pain and suffering. For there are, as we learn from this story, there is more than one way to die. Death can grab hold of us long before our bodies give out. Just because someone is breathing doesn't necessarily mean they're alive. We can think of lots of situations, lots of people marked more by the shadow of death being lifeless than they are by the spark, the animation of hope and purpose. The life that comes by way of the compassion of Jesus isn't the kind of life, though, reserved for us only when we physically die. No, the word of life Jesus speaks here is the word that is given now for a broken and weary world. It is the word of God that seeks to bless, to call the dead back to life. Not just dead souls, but dead hopes, dead neighborhoods, dead dreams, dead marriages, dead families. Jesus sees us whenever grief strikes us down and causes us to lose hope. Jesus moves towards us Jesus moves in when guilt and shame eat away at our self-worth as we internalize the neglect, the put-downs, the rejection of other people as we begin to die to any sense of who we truly are, of all that we mean to our Heavenly Father. It tears Jesus up inside. It breaks his heart. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't just see. Jesus doesn't just move in. Jesus reaches out. In that moment, just as we seem to be taking hit after hit, losing our job, losing a cherished relationship, losing our health, losing any sense of security at all, just as as it feels like we're waiting for death's final blow, Jesus is reaching out. Jesus is purposing to interrupt. Jesus speaks. And he speaks his word that promises to bring us back to life. Jesus speaks his word that will enable us to once again rise. Because, beloved, the God who sees us, the God whose compassion knows no bounds, the God who reaches out to us in Jesus Christ is the God who is in the business of resurrection. The God who is in the business of not accepting death as it is, but undoing death and bringing new life out of it every time. And this new existence is what every human heart hopes for and longs. And it will come. I can't say when. 
I can't even say how. But I can point. I can share that it will come. That it will happen. That death will not have its day. That death will not get the final word. Because as this God comes to us in Christ, in the midst of all of our suffering and all of our grief, as this God comes to us in the intersection of life and death, as he does with his mother and her son, he calls and empowers us to rise, to get up and follow him, to get up and follow him, to follow him beyond death, to follow him into something more, something eternal, to keep looking, to keep looking up, not looking down, to keep getting up, to seeing, to moving forward, to keep sharing the promise, the promise of a life, a life which the scripture says, a life in which there will be no more pain, a life in which there will be no more need to cry, a life in which there will be no more mourning, because it's a life in which there will be no more death. My friends, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.